Well, the Democratic Unionists have certainly sprung a surprise, uh, managing to come up with some kind of agreement that, according to Jeffrey Donaldson, means uh, zero checks and zero paperwork. The border has been taken away. Well, Lordy, if that's happened, uh, that really is quite a, a substantial move and kind of suggests that uh, the deal that's just been cracked between London and Northern Ireland, or at least the DUP, will have to involve Brussels as well because it's kind of their shout about the checks and regulations. So we ponder what it means and what more is to come from that. It seems to be a lot of, obviously, foreign affairs in the news. We talk again about the situation in Gaza, the ICJ judgment um, and the evident uh, isolation now of Israel as being pretty much the folk who are opposed to considering any sort of Palestinian state. Uh, we talk as well about the imminence of uh, Donald Trump as the Republican candidate. Is there a long game in this for Nikki Haley? And much more besides. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, Tom's, and welcome to this week's Leslie Reddick podcast. And it's a red-letter day in the, the Joyce household, at least for me, because it was a, a two-heel at the end of the loaf day. So I had... Uh, that's always a big deal for me when I put two heels in the toaster and have my <laughs> toast in jam. That's the, that's the, oh yeah. I don't know. I, I, some genius somewhere in marketing must somehow, I would think, create specifically for people like me, an entire packaged loaf which consisted entirely of heels. Because that's that's my favourite. <laughs> I always feel slightly exotic. I don't know about yourself. I mean, but that's that's the. That's the sort of thing that gets me yeah. up in the morning in these troubled well, I days. I tend to buy sliced bread, actually, oh, so um, right. it doesn't yeah. come with you. I mean, obviously, there's a wee bit of a thing at the end, but if you get a, a sort of loaf that's normal, if you know what I mean, it's not, it's not, it doesn't naturally give that shape, you know, so you just end up with a kind of wee cornery bit, which is not mm. the same. No, no. So the, the, there we are. And uh, it's been a, an exciting week for you, Leslie, before we embark on the uh, the uh, the the news, which is, it seems to be just piling in on us as uh, with every minute. But you had an epic trip to Dumfries. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> well, actually, you know, the, I mean, really, things are so epic. This should should hardly be in in the way of, <laughs> you know, what even happened last night in Northern Ireland. But just just you know, briefly, be, partly because I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to be able to get to the open screening uh, on tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow's Thursday, I think, isn't? No, hang on a minute. I've got my days all mixed up. Uh, it is Thursday, however, I'm not going to be able to get to open, and I'm really sorry about that. We unscheduled hospital procedure. Will they never bloom in end? Mm. Uh, so you'll have to do without me. But I did send us sort of wee film that follows the two films that are being screened, Estonia and Denmark, that kind of explains a bit of them, um, which is for the Obian Oban audience. So I hope uh, people will sort of just make do and mend with that. But Dumfries, by gum, uh, what a shite burst bus service. I don't know if uh, that gets us <clears throat> the use of our semi oh, that gets us that's, dealt with. Oh, that, that's a good one because I can I can say something I, I was not going to say, but I'm now going to say because you have broken the expletive barrier. Which is? Which is, uh, I was going to refer to fucking clowns later on. But oh, no, 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 was... I don't think, well, yes, of course. We're, well, actually, yes, there you are. You're just quoting, in fact, you know, so yes. there we are. But anyway, back to the bus journey. Um, I mean, it is, it is, you know, everybody thinks at times they have bad bus services around the bus. <laughs> I mean, setting up because the trains were all cancelled to, to Dumfries because of Storm Jocelyn. Thanks, my dear. And actually, because 
in fact, you know, Network Rail had decided on this precautionary move to shut the entire network the next morning so that they could investigate um, every bit of the rail in daylight, which, you know, when you when you hear that and you think back to the Stonehaven derailment, yep, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. I mean, I, I do know, and I think we heard this before, the last time this happened, the whole network was shut down, um, that there's a little bit of worry by folk who work working in it that this is now becoming a response to any kind of difficulty on the rail network anywhere in Scotland and is slightly related to the obligation to put on replacement bus services, which you don't get if you shut the whole network. So I, I do hope there's somebody watching this because whilst it does, you know, you've got a lot of sympathy for, and obviously safety, hey, you know, I mean, I, you, it makes a lot of sense to have that, that manoeuvre done. But, you know, it was crazy. It felt kind of weird in that I was waking down the road on the bus in absolute, you know, just slight bit of a breeze by that stage. Um, same way sometimes you notice bridges have sort of got mm -hmm. the, you know, you can't pass when it's just flat cam. It feels like nobody's actually adjusted the manoeuvres. And maybe that's just impatience on our part. And we just need to learn to get over ourselves. But nonetheless, the bus had a malfunctioning. Uh, basically, the heating wasn't working at the back. That seems to be my speciality. The reason you would be <laughs> sitting at the back is that the door, which made a buzzing noise when it was open to alert people to the fact that, you know, a fairly large door was moving. That buzzer noise wasn't cancelled. So it basically was a fairly penetrating, because that's what it's designed to do, noise for a, about an hour until miraculously at Hamilton, hello Hamilton, uh, the door opened and glory be, the buzzing noise stopped. But basically everybody in the bus had started moving backwards along the bus to get away from this <laughs> absolutely drilling in your head buzzing noise. And I so, feel so sorry for the driver because, you know, there was no escape for him. Um, so that brought you more into proximity with the permanently malfunctioning toilet, which nonetheless <laughs> seemed to have a certain, how will we put this, aroma about it. Oh, yeah. The Wi-Fi wasn't working. The charging units on the thing wasn't working. It was all a bit tatty, you know, and there was a lad there who was watching me kind of gamely trying to plug stuff in and kind of said, it doesn't work. It never works. I'm on this bus all the time. Nothing works. And the toilets are always like this. So at the end of it, like a good blooming girl guide, practically, I tweeted this, you know, how basically shite mm -hmm. this bus was, because that's two hours, almost two and a half hours of this winding your way through lots of small places that don't feel tremendously direct. Um, so it's a long time to kind of be putting those up with this, especially given that you expected to have the same journey on the way back the next day. Um, and Stagecoach, who managed it, did come back and sort of said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that there's that bus got, so I've got a problem. You know, we'll have to look at it and see what I, I mean, this is come on, come on, people. You know, the guy, when he had that buzzing noise, he went back into Buchanan's bus station to try and find somebody to come and fix it or to see if there was another bus. Just like the time that there was absolutely no heating in minus five when mm. people had all, you know, you could see a breath in the in the in the in the bus. And there is no backup. You know, there is no other bus. There is nothing, quite evidently, because he came back shoulders down about, you know, five minutes later, resigned to the fact that he was going to have to just, you know, hammer on with this bus, which, of course, by the time you got to Dumfries, turned around and took people for the next two and a half hours back with mm -hmm. nobody complaining. Because there's no point. Yeah. And you know, this when you get to this stage, this is the really bad bit when everybody has really given up and just tries to modify a pretty rubbish sort of situation. 
So, I, I mean, I don't know why I'm even bothering airing this, but you did ask. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and yet Dumfries itself, lovely people. My God, what a beautiful town in the Nith powering through the mm-hmm. middle of that. You certainly, you know, when you hear about all the problems they've got about flooding at the White Sands, you fairly get the idea because it's just the most incredibly powerful river that's that's pretty much pa- hurtling past them and past the Robert Burns uh, Centre, which is, has got a lovely little bespoke cinema in it, which had two screenings of the Denmark film, both of them actually sold out. Uh, and then the next day, Burns Night, Burns Day, um, I was taken around to see the, the, the mausoleum because I think everybody associates Burns much more with where he, he grew up, which is more the Ayrshire sort of mm-hmm. aired. But I mean, he, he moved obviously to Dumfries, was an excise man then there, had Ellisland Farm, which was a guy tough farm that he ploughed for a while and then sort of gave up on, which is now becoming a new burn centre. But you kind of get the feeling, you know, they've got this amazing mausoleum, astonishing graveyard with the toughest. I just happened to remark upon the fact that these massive sandstone graves and monuments and everything, sandstone, you know, you kind of expect that kind of erodes a bit. And it's there's there's crystal clear writing on these these gravestones from about 1700. And I mentioned that they've all glowed with pride. Now, I'm going to forget the name of the single place practically in the universe <laughs> that you get this really tough sandstone from around Dumfries. And that sandstone has been sent around the world because it absolutely keeps its shape over centuries. So there's a lot going on for them there, as well as Burns House, which I got a wee guided tour around. And, you know, there's Burns Seat and Burns. I didn't realise it was a terrible one for engraving things in windows. And he actually had a sort of almost pen with a really sharp diamond tip, which would let him scribble his names and stuff like that on the windows. Burns was here. <laughs> it's almost like that, actually. But just lovely wee touches like that. And I'm very grateful to the folk that showed me around uh, and to David and Alice, who put me up overnight. So it was a great, great trip. And I, I, I mean, I wish that they just get the bus service they deserve. So, yeah, it's all going, you know, really well on the film front, albeit it's pretty uh, relentless. And also people are putting new events on. So for anybody who is wanting to see sort of the film that's in the Glasgow area, there will be a new Glasgow one online uh, this afternoon. The link there will be one in Thurso up in Caithness and there'll be one in Peterhead. In fact, I think it's already on. So. Those, I think, are the newest ones. And that's enough. Yes. <laughs> that's enough. So um, so there we are. And if you want to look, you know, the, the link will be on the podcast. Uh, yeah. It differs as usual. But it's basically my, you know, where you've I've seen this podcast, lesliereddick.com forward slash events, not films, but events, because that's the list of them. Right. So that's that. Yeah. And before I move on to a rather tenuous link from Burns and Burns Country uh, to our next topic. I've just got to say Dumfries is a lovely place, except when I go there on football activities and we'll just cover the fact that uh, it is not a happy hunting ground for the world famous Dundee United, particularly in the Scottish Cup this year. However, moving swiftly on, talking about excise men and being in charge of customs leads us to Mm. the DUP. uh, Big secret meeting last night where they all had to gathers gathered in different places and be brought together and Jeffrey Donaldson managed to get the party together and they seem to he seems to have called up an agreement within his own political party uh, whether that is within the broader unionist loyalist uh, community uh, to go back into 
government uh, and he will be the deputy first minister and it will be the first ever nationalist stroke Republican first minister of Northern Ireland. So a remarkable achievement and uh, we await, even though there are rumours, to see what the deal has been struck with the, the UK government. Yeah, I mean, I, I may just not quite heard heard you rightly there, but Donaldson can't be the deputy first minister, actually, oh, um, because he resigned yeah. his assembly seat, um, you know, yeah. as one of his flounces. So, I mean, there's a couple of candidates for that that people won't. Well, I don't know who they are. Emma Little, Pengelly, DP, oh, yeah. director of elections, Gordon Lyons. But they're both basically Donaldson people and right. they spent months in this negotiating thing. So fundamentally, it's a kind of. Donaldson apparatchik that would mm-hmm. be, you know, be in the deputy position. But yes, I mean, for most people, they've skipped straight to the political significance of this, which basically means <clears throat> apparently there's predictions that uh, that this that the first move of this, which would be to elect a new neutral speaker for mm-hmm. Stormont um, and then immediately after that nominate a DUP for deputy, that could happen next week. Which is astonishing, isn't it? After these years of kind of like nothing. But sort of in the background for all of this, I mean, to to give him his due, he's that meeting last night apparently had eight MPs, six Lords, 25 members of the Northern Ireland Assembly, 90 representatives from councils from the DUP. So that was one huge Mm -hmm. blooming meeting. Um, And a lot of craftiness by all accounts uh, went into it to make sure that uh, there would be no vote within it um, so that, you know, it kind of opened up the, the kind of <laughs> very obvious wounds there are about the entire thing. Yeah. Um, there's some I was listening to Stephen Nolan's programme this morning over in NI um, and Stephen is just scythes through things like a blooming human uh, you know, combine harvester. So they've got the promise of Jeffrey Donaldson coming on his programme on Thursday morning. Uh, so that looks like, you know, they're trying to give themselves a little bit of a window break now to try to because, he you know, that will go into the, the details forensically. And what uh, Stephen Nolan was looking into was uh, an interview that uh, Jeffrey Donaldson had given er- this morning on BBC Good Morning Ulster where he had actually said about the new checks or lack of them that have has been agreed that allows this whole thing to go ahead. Um, he And he said in this, he said there will be zero checks and zero paperwork. The border will be taken away. Mm. Now, you know, Stephen Nolan just sort of said, really? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, how does that actually work? Wow. So uh, there'll be a lot of question marks. I mean, even I mean, these may seem small things uh, compared to the complete log jam that there is. But there obviously would have to be random checks in any situation. But this kind of suggests that we've now moved to a situation where there has to be absolutely zero checks. That's interesting. There's also the the, the point that made by their northern the, the Northern Ireland political correspondent there that that kind of promise needs Brussels involved. Mm-hmm. Because that's not just you know we would have thought that the that everything that's being presented today is the result of London and and the DUP doing horse trading, which, as we know, they're quite capable of doing. Um, But if you're going to start saying, and for sure doing, zero checks and zero paperwork, that's a Brussels gig. That's, as you know, they have to be involved as well. And that means reopening the Windsor framework, which Mm -hmm. the EU has said repeatedly is a done deal. So 
there's bits here that don't yet make, you know, sort of completely look like they, they fit together. And yet, of course, it's very good news. The other thing that there was a focus on is uh, yet again, in the sense that Theresa May basically bribed the DUP to prop up her administration back in 2018. Um, there's a 3.3 billion uh, bit of money hanging around this that Stormont gets up and running again. Uh, one of the, the main things that's been earmarked for that, not surprisingly, is uh, the kind of uh, the cost of living crisis and a pay rise for key workers. The kind of pay rise that has happened in everywhere else, pretty much, except, you know, they're still striking about a lot of that in England, but certainly Scotland and largely Wales. So Northern Ireland finally gets to be able to kind of put that rise through. However, that's a that's a one off amount of money. So if you're going to give people pay rises, you can't just kind of give them pay rises for one year and then there's nothing next year. Mm -hmm. And that's the difficulty of having the bungs. Because the bungs, that's fine for a one-off project, but uh, you know you would have to be canny to figure out how you might man manage to make that turn into dealing with the big problems and um, massive problems Northern Ireland is having, you know, just on the ordinary everyday pay and economics front. Yeah, I mean, and just uh, just look looking at it as well. I mean, we will go back to the, the there's no checks. And on goods crossing the border because because of the Windsor framework, um, Northern Ireland has remained inside the, the EU single market for goods. The rest of the UK is left. And that, that means you know, that the DUP, we say there's free-throwing trade between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And at the time of, uh, of us exiting uh, the EU, our, our rules were in complete conjunction with the European Union. And the government, well, apparently, according to the Daily Telegraph, is offering to introduce a new requirement that all new UK laws are screened to ensure they will not increase the impact of the sea border. Now, that's a very different thing to saying there will be no checks, not increase the impact of the sea border. So I'm just intrigued what happens when these Tory Brexiteers get a hold of this and turn and say, well, hang on a minute, Paul. The only way this is actually going to work uh, in order to secure the return of the DUP to Stormont is if we actually continue not to diverge from EU rules. Yeah. So that would be an absolute belter. One of the things that amused me, and it really shouldn't, because remember we talked about the green lane, red lane, and there would be green lane for goods moving through Northern Ireland to the Republic Islands would have to use red lane procedures, a green lane system for goods arriving from GB. And that's, this is going to be simplified. And one of the key aspects of that has got to be renamed the UK internal market lane, not the green lane. So no, it didn't go as far as the orange lane, but I mean, it's the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the UK internal no. market. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, yeah. I know, but, but you're right enough. It is, it's crazy, isn't it? Because on the other hand, you know, Northern Ireland's economy is booming to an extent. Yes. In a way, because because of the ability to be able to swing both ways fundamentally, and to have this access to across the you know island of Ireland and then to to the EU, we've still got a situation where last May I think it was there was more pass Irish passports issued in Belfast than British passports mm -hmm. for the first time ever, and you know we've got this situation again where here we are having to talk through the minutiae of a deal which the majority of people in Northern Ireland essentially are kind of, you know, don't, this is not an issue. They're happy with the cross-border, you know, the, the situation that they've got, the best of both worlds thing, has got the majority of Northern Ireland people supporting that. 
And for that to be a majority, it also requires some unionists to be feeling that way. And they do. Yeah. So there we are. The majority of people don't have a problem. I mean, when you and I were over there, it was actually almost this time last year, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, to that yeah. sort of um, Belfast festival that we were at. Yeah. I mean, it was stunning the amount of kind of open fury there yes. was from people who were also unionists, actually, about the DUP. Um, just absolutely do you remember that guy in the taxi that said he would actually kill them if we saw them? You know, yes. it was it was just and you can understand it because I, as I understand it, and I could have got this wrong because the history of Northern Ireland's, you know, Stormont being in and out is kind of almost impossible mm-hmm. to follow. But I mean, you know, the the Emma, the MLAs, I hope I've got that right, uh, in, in Northern Ireland are still drawing salaries despite not mm-hmm. being able to get anything done because the executive has not been able to sit and you just, you know, if, if anyone feels frustrated with the Dumfries bus, uh, just imagine that times a million, which is what you're sitting with with Northern Ireland, which on the other hand has been quietly managing to do away because of a of a of a Europe because of an EU membership by Ireland. If you're going to fundamentally come down to it, which um, Northern Ireland has benefited from. You know, whilst even yeah. with with unionists kind of holding their noses. And then if you're going to go to the next bit that you have looked at, which is whether or not these Brexit bams uh, will yeah. now start to kind of pick over the fact that, yeah, rightly, some of this tightening up means there's less wriggle room for the whole of Britain to deviate uh, from from EU norms. So that kind of much vaunted race to the bottom that some of them favour might be hard to do if you're kind of stuck with this tiny, irritating little dinghy of a thing in Northern Ireland that just has to stay in the same position. Um, These these guys, equally, the Brexit bams, are speaking for a minority, even of English people now. Yes. So this is kind of where we are with all of this, that we end up having to, to look through the minute details of agreements between people, Lord this and Lord that, and all these, you know, yeah, um, who are not speaking for a majority of their own population. And this is where democracy begins to collapse. That You know, it's it's like, sorry to keep metaphorising that Dumfries bus, but it's like that written large, you know, yeah. when people get to the stage that everyone's slapping folk on the back because what, they're able to finally get something that means they might draw a salary for doing something in two years, you know. Hmm. Mm. It'll be intriguing to see the reaction because we all remember what happened to the Ulster Unionist Party, which went into free fall electorally in comparison to it being the dominant political party in the unionist community for for decades since the foundation of the state and the the growth of the DUP. And I'll just be intrigued to see what happens. Uh, Will there be uh, defections from the DUP? Will this strengthen the TUV? As, as an alternative, more hardline, if you like, version of the DUP. Um, so it'll be intriguing to see what happened there, because remember, Jeffrey Donaldson himself was originally a member, I believe, of the Ulster Unionist Party and then became a member of the DUP. Um, so well, I, be... I think these guys um, these guys embody Skippy the bush kangaroo in that they skip <laughs> around as it, the mood <laughs> takes them. But on the other hand, I mean, the DUP can now waggle this 3.3 billion, which is not a, yeah. a small amount. So, you know, they'll be hopefully kind of saying none of this would have come our way if we hadn't stuck our dug our heels in. Yes. Now, you know, it'll be very interesting. And I mean, really, if you do fancy hearing a very vigorous, uh, utterly hilarious and real um, analysis of all of this, folks, I would tune in. If you can do it on your 
you know, on online to the Nolan show on Thursday morning because um, <laughs> I wouldn't like to be Jeffrey Donaldson sort of, you know, shaping up to Stephen Nolan <laughs> and the callers basically on that one. Um, and, and we'll likely hear a lot more of what happens. But then, you, you know, it's just it's so depressing because, um, you, you know, what happened to that money that Theresa May bunged them? I'm not quite sure, and I'm only asking this rhetorically because I, you would have to take some time to really look forensically to try and find out what happened. Um, that was actually after the Renewable Heat Initiative scandal, um, course, yeah. which was 500 million tube, quid down the tubes and which partly started this business of not having the executive positions filled because that was Arlene Foster when she was Environment Secretary that passed that one through in 2012. The whole thing went Pete Tong in 2016. Martin McGuinness, the late Martin McGuinness, who was deputy, resigned over it because she wouldn't stand down despite the fact she was involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that then collapsed the power sharing agreement because the executive positions weren't filled. And she hung on nonetheless until it was perfectly obvious that, you know, it, she had been very complicit in it. And so when she finally went, there was a kind of another election and there was, you know, a new a guy filled in whose name I can't even remember because he was such a nothing and managed to last for only something like, you know, less than one year. So this is the kind of rickety state that everybody in, in Northern Ireland has had to sort of get just thole. And you, this now would have to be a much, much more vigorous kind of approach because people will otherwise think quite rightly that they're just in for another stop start, you know, and the danger with that, de- you know, deputy not being Jer- Jeffrey Donaldson, uh, but by being someone and I'm sorry, I don't know them. So perhaps they are more solid people. That's quite possible. Uh, but it, this definitely needs a lot of energy put into it to work. And it, it must work. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and it's been welcomed by all all the other political parties. I mean, it has to be up and running. And it'll be, as I say, finger, I mean, genuinely, fingers crossed that it, it does get up and running so the people of Northern Ireland can gain the... the, the can come back to some form and retain that stability that, that happened after the Good Friday Belfast agreement. And they can get the, the strikes that have been happening settled as well, which have been completely disrupting the public sector. But leading on to the next thing, I, I note that um, Sinn Féin have decided to go to the traditional St. Patrick's Day uh, meeting with Joe Biden, but the SDLP have said because of the situation in Gaza, they will not be attending the traditional uh, St. Patrick's Day meeting with the US president. And that leads us into the uh, what's been taking place in the Middle East, and not just Israel, Gaza, in, in over the past week. And I think beginning, we'll have to begin with the remarkable 15 to 2 decision by the uh, International Court of Justice that there was a case to hear about so the potential genocide going on in Gaza and the the provisions that have been put in place by the ICJ and the reaction of the Israeli government to this and, and the subsequent thing uh, subsequent actions that have taken place following on from that and i know that's a lot of subsequent and following ons but i mean it it does seem to me when i look at this there is a a chain of events you know we we go back and we look at these chains of events and the narratives that are being created by the israeli government in terms of uh, the icga decision and the subsequent release of the the claims by the israeli government that uh unrwa which is the united nations uh relief and uh, 
works agency, how members of that agency have been engaged in Hamas activities. Yeah, I mean, there's so much actually keeps happening. I mean, in a week, it's 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 enormous. And and just by the by, there was a, I mean, jaw dropping report. Uh, they all are, but by Lindsay Hilson last night on uh, Channel Four News, where she had attended a a kind of festival that was going on of mm-hmm. Israelis who uh, were basically whose whose view is that Palestinians should just be removed from Gaza. Yeah. The end. And a woman with no blinking hesitation or or anything at all basically just said that these people need to be got out to Egypt or whoever will take them. And that's what the process needs to be. And, you know, they're very happy about it. And they were jigging around and having a great old time. And the point being that 10 members of the Israeli cabinet were present at that. And I mean, you know, you, you sort of think there's nothing much that sort of shocks you anymore about this. But the degree to which... You know, the story is very largely becoming now how much Israel is on a path actually absolutely of its own, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And okay, on the face of it, and it certainly matters that the United States and the UK um, and other nations are are kind of following in with their unequivocal support for Netanyahu. But uh, I noticed last night uh, David Cameron was actually uh, doing a speech where he said that uh, Britain's considering recognising a Palestinian state to bring ir- irreversible peace settlement progress. And uh, he, the, the Guardian even de- describes this as a landmark diplomatic moment, because uh, that would bring about a t- two-state solution, which is currently completely opposed by Benjamin Netanyahu and the rest of these kind of angry, let's just resettle the whole place followers. So I wonder uh, what's happening at the same time, of course, then you've got the attacks that have been happening by the Houthis mm-hmm. in the Red Sea and around the area, which, of course, there's been, you know, there's so much worry and speculation that that is going to just trigger uh, a, a kind of, well, people are talking about a third world war. And we've even seen people talking about whether or not we would be conscripted to defend yeah. Britain in the instance of a third world war. And it's kind of. I mean, most of the experts who are brought brought in to talk about this will point out that actually behind the scenes, this kind of stuff has been going on for years, this tit for tat around the area. Yeah. Not that this is not worrying at all. And there seems to be some argument as well of just how much Iran is instrumental. It either is instrumental, in which case, as one of their guys pointed out last night, we are the superpower in this region, not the United States. And perhaps you might just accept that. Um, or else it isn't. They aren't all the the other groups are not in the pocket of Iran. Um, and you would have to notice that none of this began until the Gaza situation flared up. Yeah. So, I mean, whilst it's quite possible that people are using situations to do things for their own reasons, and obviously let's not be naive about it, um, that sort of flaring up didn't happen until the Gaza situation had just got completely, you know, beyond, well, beyond anything, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's uh, so but it's still I mean, much as one doesn't, you know, hold your breath, at anything that Bloomin' David Cameron comes up with. On the other hand, these guys, you know, to 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 say that now you've got to do something about this. Um, he'd also said that the Palestinians have to have a political horizon. Uh, well, fine. You know, that's like 100 years behind everybody else. And yet, if that's the kind of language that the UK is moving towards, you've got to assume that the states are moving that way because the UK don't do nothing on their own. 
so who knows, there might be something brewing in the back of it all. Yeah, I mean, and one of, one of the key things when I looked at the provisional measures that the ICJ ordered Israel to take uh, that are legally binding, must be complied with without delay, was to take immediate and effective measures to ensure the provision of humanitarian assistance to the civilian population in the Gaza Strip in cooperation with the United Nations and other relevant organisations and to facilitate the access of such assistance. And what's at the back of my mind here is this sudden issuing of the evidence that they obtained through interrogation of these uh, workers for UNRWA uh, under interrogation by the Israelis. They, and UNRWA has immediately suspended, sacked the people, those who are still alive, and said they're going to investigate the claims. Um, and here, it just occurred to me the fact is that if re this is now a rationale, if if Israel is not providing the humanitarian assistance, Leslie, they can turn around and say, well, hang on a minute here. It's not us. UNRWA has been, um, who they've been attacking mercilessly and claiming it's been a Hamas front for long, long before this. They can turn around and say, well, look at all these other nations. They stopped their funding too as well. They obviously agree with us that the United Nations organisations here are Hamas-led, Hamas-organised and are Hamas uh, fellow travellers. So it's not our fault that humanitarian assistance isn't getting in. It's the fault of the UN. And look who supports us, all these other countries who have suspended their aid. And even before the, the, the horrific situation in Gaza, over, I mean, the two point odd million people in, in Gaza were utterly dependent on the humanitarian aid and assistance, not just in terms of food, but in terms of schools, medical supplies, etc. were utterly dependent on UNRWA. And it's only going to get worse. But I think it's giving an out for the Israeli government not to comply with our ICJ uh, stipulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, it's interesting. Paul Kavanagh wrote a very good piece about this in The National, where he went through in this in, in some detail right? and just po pointed to um, the the statements that were made by UNRWA uh, that they had dismissed the employees, that they were launching a full investigation. And they assured their assurance that any employee involved in acts of terror yeah. will be held accountable, including through criminal prosecution. I mean... You know, if you're if you're to look at that, I mean, this is to say that UNRWA has got people in it who it looks like, well, they haven't lost launched their full investigation, but they've dismissed them first. So, you know, you yep. might think that says something. Yes. Have had some folk in it who were prepared to act in appalling terrorist ways, right? Um, you've then got the dis decision of the court that is basically saying much the same, essentially, of what's happening from the Israeli side in that it's just about saying this is a genocide, although it hasn't moved towards those words. So you then, and, and this, the, the news seems to be full of this kind of thing where there, at the moment, where there is one treatment for the folk that the, that the kind of mainstream has decided are the baddies, Yes. And a completely different treatment for the folk who are, are getting a relatively less scrutiny, at least by the powers that be. Uh, so that, in fact, Hamza Youssef has been pulled into this. And I noticed mm -hmm. that in this piece on Channel 4 News, this really appalling woman actually said, why don't these refugees just go wherever wants to have them? And she listed a couple of countries. Scotland was the second on her list. Now, rarely has Scotland actually had such a prominent role in the, the talking or thinking of anybody, you know, in that kind of neck of the woods. 
And that's clearly because Hamza Yusuf's stance and stuff has got through to people and it obviously annoyed the hell out of that mm-hmm. constituency. But the clarification that was announced about this, uh, the BBC had basically said that the Scottish government had essentially jumped on the bandwagon and had also stopped funding to the aid organisation. Yeah. But Hamza Yusuf just clarified this by saying it had already given you know, three quarters of a million quid, which was the limit of what it could give. And given the financial constraints on the budget, it hadn't planned any way to provide further funding at the moment, but that this was not related to the allegations against UNRWA. So, uh, you know, you might think, well, you know, that's just fine lines. But on the other hand, to bother to issue a a, a clarification Mm -hmm. means you're still on that Israeli woman's kind of hit list as being the friends of the Palestinians, and in her eyes, doubtless, the friends of Hamas, since clearly what those guys, that group, were saying is that they are all one and the same thing. And when you talked about that question of aid, I mean, that was one of the main points of the the, the piece by Lindsay Hilsom, was saying that, um, you know, that in the eyes of these guys, and remember, 10 Israeli cabinet ministers there, uh, no aid should get through because it will be used to make yeah. to feed Hamas and to basically make bombs. Yeah. So as you say, if if uh, there is now no nexus in this for the UN, or there's you know this this gives gives uh, more credence to the Israelis saying, look, they've been discredited by everybody. Then clearly their own uh, approach seems to be that they really don't care if everyone starves. So you know that's not going to that aid situation could only get worse. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the what all the experts have been saying, humanitarian experts have been saying, is that this is possibly the next phase, which is when we're not going to we're going to stop bombing them out, we're going to starve them out, mm-hmm. and it'll be and it'll be what has been referred to and uh, in 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 news speak as uh, voluntary migration from Gaza elsewhere. So it is ethnic cleansing under any other. Any any other what set of wording, and don't dare to speak out about it uh, because as uh, Kate Osamore, uh, the Labour MP for Edmonton, has now been suspended from the Labour Party because she she uh, in, in her uh, statement about Holocaust Memorial Day said that Gaza should be remembered as genocide along with all the recent genocides in Cambodia, Rwanda, and Bosnia, and it was immediately suspended. Uh, by the Labour Party, but it's a, it's a significant issue as well. Again, because as you talked about Les, earlier, Leslie, that there there seems to be a denial. But in the United States, have been denying it, as has uh, Grant Sharps in the UK. The United States have been denying there is any any connection between what has been going on in Gaza and the 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 incidents that have taken place. Uh, I mean, as I say, the latest one was the the Tower 22 drone attack, where I think three three US serving servicemen and I think 25 were injured. And it's this the stop and think about that. I mean, it is the fact that Biden has said there will be a response, and you've got two elements of this. You've got a tactical response. What do we do immediately in the United States? What is the proportionate response to this? And against whom do we respond? Because Iran has denied all involvement whatsoever in the attack. And then you've got the the next element, the second element, which what's the strategy behind that? What what is the US position on the Middle East? What should it be? Can Biden rein in Israel? Has the I mean, can can he rein in their actions? What's going on behind the scenes? And can we read the uh, the American 
pause or funding for UNRWA as possibly a means of saying they're still with you, Israel, whilst behind the scenes trying to, to rein them in. Well, is it, is it, I know it's a, an immoral one to cut off the aid, but is it a, a smart move on his part to, 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 to bolster the apparent support for Israel? And uh, will he actually recognise the fact that the, the Gaza is the destabilising feature and the Israeli perspective on Palestine and the Palestinians and the creation of a two-state solution, will he actually recognise this fact? And will he actually stop funding the ability of Israel to engage in these acts because of the fact that the knock-on effect is going to have in the destabilisation of the Middle East? A lot of questions there, and I'm genuinely uncertain about it. Yeah, well, I hope you're not expecting me to answer any of that. No, no, it's sort just of, thoughts. You know, well, it's, yeah. yes, but it is it is all up there in the air. Um, but but the degree that it's bending people out of shape now, this 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 issue. I mean, there's Angela Rayner, you know, mm-hmm. previously seen as a good solid lefty. Uh, people will have probably seen the video of of an event she was at with with many people basically shouting at her and uh, one woman shouting at her specifically, you call yourself a feminist and there's been 25,000 people dead. You know, the majority of them are women and children. And she was asked about that, uh, you know, on the next programme that she was on, instead of talking about whatever it is Labour's, you know, policies are, uh, she ends up having to answer questions about what it felt like to be in in an event, having that, you know, level of, of, fierce anger directed towards her and she she just has to keep mouthing um mealy-mouthed kind of totally unsatisfactory words that just come from a script which is now what we're beginning to associate completely with with labor that you know the world could be ending and somebody would just still be sitting there like a teleprinter chuntering out some sort of carefully scripted thing that didn't really quite acknowledge that there was anything terribly bad happening and I mean, uh, last last uh, prime minister's question, Stephen Flynn. Yeah. Um. You you know just really pushed the point of the, about the the video that had just been on ITV at that point, uh, where these Israeli army shot dead an unarmed Palestinian man standing with his hands up under a white flag, and asked was that a war crime? And Rishi Sunak couldn't answer it. And of course, the next time Keir Starmer was on something, he was asked about it. Yeah. And he got back to the teleprinter chuntering. So it's not just, you know, everybody is being knocked out of shape by being unable to call a spade a spade in this degree, apart from South Africa um, and various other states that have, mm-hmm. have leaned in. I think Ireland actually have leaned in to support South Africa on that. But uh, you know this 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 one this one is not going away, and I don't know if they all thought that people just got bored with Israel or bored with kind. Of, and it does make you realise that actually seeing really is not just believing, but it's feeling. So that seeing this all on the news all the time is what keeps you connected to the dilemma and the and the kind of you know the the, the incredibly stoic um, quality of Palestinian people who also have got the most, you know, you, 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 you're made to wonder a lot, this question about would we be conscripted to, to, to defend Britain? That's a real toughie. What would we do, you know, if our entire family was wiped out and lying in little white sheets in front of us? 
Yes. And the kind of the incredibly unreserved outpouring of real emotion. And at that point, not, you know, just utter loss, devastation and grief. These are such deep, real human emotions. And you rarely see them, actually, because we are very sanitized. You know, we're living in a safe Mm -hmm. country, actually. And you don't see, you know, we've sanitized everything to do with death. Uh, and perhaps the only other way that this is having a, a, a kind of outpouring at the moment is within the, the COVID inquiry, yeah. because so much focuses on the hurt of the people who towed the line and had to go through horrible situations where they couldn't have that outpouring of emotion towards family members who were left dying on their own. Um, so this is it's powerful stuff, all of this. And it's what keeps this with us because we are emotional people. I mean, humans are have an emotional reaction and that is so often dismissed as, oh, well, you know, that's irrational and we need to kind of get a grip on it. But it also searches out the core of the reality of a situation when all the rest of it is blah. Yeah. The core of it is still demonstrated to you over and over again. And the core of it is, you know, is love and family and and people and dignity. And this is what you see being crushed over and over and over again when you watch anything to do with Palestine. And it's the reason people won't just knuckle down, go away, stop protesting, stop expecting Labour to have a position on it, because it is currently standing for everything in the world that needs to be said on the part of people against what looks like faceless technocrats who simply want to try to kind of negotiate away a reality that we're not we're not going to forget now. Yeah, I mean, we'll go back to that that video. I'm sure again, most people have seen it, the, the Angela Rayner event where a man who had lost his entire family was what was, was, was standing up and talking and he was huckled out of the hall, huckled out, you know, because you don't count, pal. And as you said earlier, there are those who are worthy of respect, who are worthy of emotion, and are those who are deemed to be unworthy. And that is being clarified entirely through this situation in, in Gaza. Well, Plus the other the, thing, just quickly mm-hmm. to say about that, though, was having watched it, I mean, it was obviously there were minders there. So yeah. that, you know, there was a stage where, I mean, he managed to get a couple of sentences out. And, you know, I, I'm sure other people would say, to be fair, there have also been attacks on MPs and they yeah. weren't sure which way that was going. And if you're security, you're paid to move first and ask questions later. I mean, I quite get that. And I also get there's many criticisms that you could make for of Hamza Yusuf. Um, for, I've made them in recent columns quite oh, a yeah. lot, right? But that just puts that moment back, you know, the moment where he bounded off a stage to go and deal with a heckler. That really... It, it kind of helps to underpin how astonishing that was because nobody does this anymore. Nobody takes the risk that there isn't some malintent at the back of it to decide that they're going to go and physically intervene and talk to somebody, you know. But, I mean, that would have been a strong thing. If, And I, I wouldn't really say that I would expect Angela Rayner to suddenly know what sort of situation she was facing there and to go over to the minder and say, look, let him speak. Let him speak, yeah. But if she had found the kind of, it would have been courage in all sorts yeah. of different ways to do that. By gum, it would have made some sort of impact. Now, I quite concede again that clearly the fact it was being filmed very clearly and there was two other people 
ready to launch off when this first mm-hmm. guy was lifted means it was quite a choreographed um yeah. you know intervention shall we say so she wouldn't have basically managed to shut that down very easily but at least there would have been on tape and and kind of impossible to excise you couldn't have seen the man that we're talking about uh who'd lost everybody without the fact that she'd registered what he'd said and said, no, let's hear about your mum. Yeah. And equally, the previous week, there was another uh, video doing the rounds of Rishi Sunak, you know, talking to a woman. Oh, yes. Um, I'm trying to remember what her issue was, but I think, again, she had got, she started to talk about, it was the NHS, but I'm trying to remember if it was her mother or her daughter, somebody had, Mm -hmm. she started to talk about her family's problems, and it looked as if Keir Starmer just turned on his heels and sorry, Rishi, sorry, Rishi Sunak turned on on his heels and just walked away from her. Actually, uh, by the end of the day, and of course everybody was going, Jesus, you know, this is like the end of Rishi Sunak because it just was so bad. But by the end of the day, a different angle of a different uh, camera was on, which showed that he had turned around, but so had she. And they'd walked along for a way together before, yeah, before uh, she continued to talk about that thing. And he was just walking with her beside him. And eventually they stopped and they shook hands and she walked off. Now, that doesn't mean to say, you know, she was a totally happy bunny or that he's a great guy. But simply that that was a one. And I can't remember if it was Sky that did this, but there was a lot of criticism online afterwards of, you know, releasing that simply because it looked kind of sexy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you see, you didn't see that afterwards. No, I didn't. So that's exactly what happens. Um, you know, you have to really be so careful about what you think looks like a straight up kind of moment of character assassination. But nonetheless, to come back to the thing with Angela Rayner and, and uh, Labour, You know, I can't remember the name of the gentleman, the older gentleman as well, who was huckled out of a Labour conference, but I can remember the sight of it. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's the point. You don't need to remember the names, but you can remember him being lifted and huckled out of the conference. And that's that's what you begin to get the feeling. That's the Labour response to anybody who's a bit of an awkward squad is that that's how they get treated. So if it if it if it had been possible for Angela Rayner to just grab that moment, and it's going to happen again and again and again, girl. So think about it, because the next time you need to do better than that if you want to have any sort of credibility at all, because the vis the vi- visceral memory is carried by seeing these things. Yeah, when talking about character assassination, that uh, never-ending carbuncle on the body politic, Donald Trump won the uh, New Hampshire primary. Uh, I think he defeated uh, Nikki Haley by about 11 points in in terms of the percentages and immediately launched a a vicious attack on Nikki Haley. And then just after that, after the Tower 22 attacks, declared that Joe Biden was weak. He was, uh, if he'd have been in charge, there would have been no invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, Iran would have been so impoverished it wouldn't have been able to fund the attacks by Hamas and wouldn't be able to do anything it was able to do because Donald Trump was so strong. So yes, that was, uh, and of course, of course, this is all within the, the framework of him just having to uh, had found against him in terms of after a conviction for sexual assault and uh, his defaming of Eugene Carroll. 
uh, in his uh, in his re- replies about that has been fined $83.3 million um, uh, in terms of a fine because of his defamatory statements about the the the, the journalists. So there you go. But the, the New Hampshire by-election, he did win by a mile. But a couple of the interesting things, I don't know if you noticed, um, that um, he underperformed with independents, 60% of those chose Haley, and 73% of self-declared moderates uh, voted for Nikki Haley, and 65% of non-MAGA identifiers voted for Nikki Haley as well. But it does look as if, I mean, her coat's on the right, Shugley Pegg, uh, she's not standing in the Nevada caucus because of some arcane regulations she's put her name forward for the presidential primary in Nevada, so can't go in for that. And it'll be South Carolina, her own home state, is the next one that's coming up at the end of February. And I reckon by the end of February, that'll be her done. Uh, Trump will be the, uh, the the candidate that's going to go forward for, for the Republican Party, but I'm still clinging, despite my, uh, I would have in the States, hold my nose and vote for Joe Biden. And I think that's uh, my hanging on by my fingernails for the fact that those figures concerning about those who do not identify as MAGA may hold their noses and vote f- for Biden if they don't just not vote at all. Yeah. And if anyone's sort of just get the maggots make America great again thing, yeah. just in case you've forgotten. Um, but I, I did see, um, it, you know, it, it does go both ways. And you listen to a lot of these analyses and, and actually somebody, again, I can't remember quite who, but, you know, an American an- analyst had said that if uh, if Nikki Haley was within 10 percent of of by of uh, Trump on New Hampshire, that mm-hmm. was actually a bit of a result in that. That's pick upable across yeah. the, the rest of the year, um, not just for the reasons that you were analysing about, you know, the sort of independent candidates and stuff within it, but also because he's not out the other end of all these kind of legal, you know, the, of all yeah. the, the kind of cases against him. And th- there's still people that are absolutely categorically saying he will get lifted for for well he'll get sentenced to jail for one or t'other of the many cases there are against him and ironically whilst that might not stop him being um you know being able to be president because i think it's true that he can actually be president even from jail um which does shine a <laughs> bit of a light yes. on a lot of these sort of processes uh the, the there is a constant uh, return in the polling, which has so far been right about the results of the primaries, uh, that suggests that if he is actually jailed, that is a kind of bridge too far for enough people that his that the support just begins to peter out. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why there's a thinking that she will just keep pegging along and why the money's still rolling for her, um, oh, because yes. there could be that situation where essentially he isn't able to be the president. Now, this could so, uh, sorry, the presidential candidate. I mean, this could all of us be clutching at straws here. And you've got to say that around the world, the mere thought that Trump might be, you know, that chaos might be rolling into an already chaotic set of situations is kind of focusing the mind, whether it's wonderfully or not, is sort of focusing the mind. Um, but there you are. It's all that we're left to hope for is that that his past and his behaviour even if it doesn't sort of worry so such an extraordinary number of people uh, that it will actually catch him up 
before the nomination. So it could be months before it looks like there was any sense in Nikki Haley staying in the race is kind of what the, you know, what the optimistic pundits are saying. Yes. Well, I mean, talking of optimism, do we have, do we have any at the end of this week? I mean, because the we we got an insight into the uh, secret union report that uh, Michael Grove, uh, Michael Grove, Michael Gove commissioned and put forward to the the UK cabinet uh, during COVID, and it was a it was a. Any time I, I listen to Michael Gove, I, f- I find it very intriguing because what he managed to do simultaneously was appear to be very reasonable, very rational. And yes, I do respect the work that the Scottish ministers did, but then stick the knife in the back, as he is well used to doing politically, by turning around saying, but of course, because the SNP is, is committed to Scottish independence, they will do anything within their powers to destroy the union. And in so doing, what they did is they tried to emphasise and turn what he referred to, I think, as imperfections in in response to COVID into a rationale for uh, destruction of of the union. And that was one of the big things I took about out that. And whilst declaring himself that, of course, the UK government was not acting politically at all by sending Boris Johnson up to Orkney just a couple of days after that report came through. And uh, by emphasising the benefits of the union, they were not being political at all. Whereas the SNP and the Scottish government, by picking out these differences, were, of course, being entirely political. Yeah, and, and it's it's a bit like we were sort of saying earlier, there seems to be so much of this around at the moment, um, you know, that there's one player in this that essentially has the accent, let's be honest about it. Gove comes in, I mean, I've got to say, the minute you say Michael Gove, the word oleaginous comes into yes. my mind automatically, yes. and it's not a word I actually would ever use, really, it's just there for him. Um, but, you know, they, they, they will come in, I thought, like a, you know, with that sort of lofty tone. And of course, you've got to remember at the same time, these guys are already toast. So, yes, you know, they can have your have your posh voice if you want. But nonetheless, it just has that sort of, you know, <laughs> I was almost going to say it was like the old days, the Dr. Finley's casebook sort of oh, gosh, doctor's yes. tone, you know, that if yes. this was uttered by somebody of great, great sort of or Dr. You know, Snoddy, <laughs> whatever, you would sort of just take it as read. Now, that really impugns Dr. Finley's casebook characters massively because these guys are just obvious and certified liars. Right. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, it's extraordinary what the accent does. You know, just that sort of posh, you know, you just keep going. You've got a great conceit to yourself. And even in his case, it's obviously not a sort of london uh, you know, a kind of home counties accent. But nonetheless, it's that posh, confident delivery that just can come up with any old rubbish and sounds kind of roughly plausible until, yeah, these little awkward details come out that... Um, yeah, that the that uh, the, the 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 kind of Tories were trying to use the risk to the union mm-hmm. posed by COVID uh, to try to kind of make parallels about the you know, kind of economic recovery and the stage of the epidemic yeah. and so on, um, and and that was all. And of course, if you look at the actual wording of it, though, it's even the wording is that sort of posh distancing yes. language, you know, so that it doesn't sort of say let's just capitalise on this, guys, because look, we've you know we've we've had a few 
problems. But um, so what it actually says was uh, throughout this parliament, protecting and strengthening the union must be a cornerstone of all that we do. This paper, therefore, asks cabinet to agree the need to act to endorse the strategic approach described in paragraph six. You know, it's all calm, calm, neutral language, you know, nothing to see here, move on. But absolutely, this is a kind of we're going to sting these guys while this is going on. And it's just tit for tat now. You know, any evidence that the SNP dared to think about independence at the beginning of an epidemic whose duration was uncertain. Right. So then that's a kind of terrible thing to have done. And if you're listening to that and you're someone who already doesn't like independence or didn't like mm -hmm. Nicola Sturgeon, yep, that works for you. And then if you get Michael Gove basically doing much the same thing, that's, you know, for most of us, that's just, yeah, that's the way they roll. But it doesn't leave us all a lot further on. And I mean, I know this sounds like a ludicrously pompous kind of thing to say, but I, I stand looking at sellout con, you know, concert. So it was my mum's thing. Any event, anywhere, she would always call a concert, whether it was just a gathering, a meeting <laughs> or anything else, which I've kind of inherited. Anyway, so the concert that happens when there's a, a film and there's a sellout audience everywhere, you know, I just think people want some to get their minds back onto, you know, something up, uplifting, something yeah. to aim for. And politics, as we think the majority of us are in it for, which is to create a more equal society. Yes. And all this other stuff is it may feel and it's somebody's job to keep rebutting and to say, ah, but look what you did. Ah, but what look, you know. But all this does is get you into this kind of spiral of whataboutery where essentially people begin to wash their hands of the whole political dimension so that you get this strange situation where we have the SNP sitting at whatever they are in the polls and independents sitting at 54 percent. Yeah. You know, so there's the thing. The 54 percent is for uh, a better country that is going to have to do, as, as the film <clears throat> actually demonstrates, quite a lot of heavy lifting, much of which could begin now if you're to get to a state of having a better country than one whose life expectancy is dwindling and which is lagging behind on pretty much every indicator. And that is Scotland really as well, despite our best efforts. So, uh, yes, I mean, there's it's, it's, it's somebody's job to keep spotting um, the, the flip side of all the stuff that's being chucked at the SNP at the moment. But when it comes to the COVID inquiry, for example, um, you know, there was people that got in touch a bit about last week, you know, when personally I was saying I I find still find the, the WhatsApp thing pretty hard to get. And of course, Nicola's mm -hmm. doing her turn tomorrow. So yeah. we'll hear more then. And you either, I don't know, use, I mean, people are saying you don't need to be in a WhatsApp group to get WhatsApp messages. I guess that's true. But I'm... It's 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 just okay. It's strange that Jean Freeman seems to have used WhatsApp, and I didn't quite get that point of clarity as to whether she was in a WhatsApp group. Because if she was, and she's the health secretary, hmm, I don't know who else would she be in a WhatsApp group with. You know, I yeah. don't know. Uh, but anyway, in a way, that's by the by. And you've got to say, for the for the um, for the broadcasters who have focused on bringing in the relatives. They have the great impact, the relatives, of actually yeah. getting to the core of the issue rather than all the kind of flummery about. They may feel very, very let down by the sense that they thought there was better standards of everything going on in Scotland. And now they're not sure. But the kind of stuff that they really want to know about, that thing about isolation of relatives 
you know, yeah. has to never happen again for, for not clear reasons. I mean, that has to be more in the gift of the, the family. Obviously, moving people out of hospital without testing them, I'm still not yeah. clear, but having been on buses, trains and everything else lately, I feel like I haven't spent enough time listening to the very detail of someone asking that question and I haven't been able to find it uh, to, again, not forensic looking online. But is there an explanation for why that testing wasn't possible? I'm guessing that there was a feeling there just wasn't the time to get that whole system up and running, yeah. presumably. Yeah. Um, there was questions um, at a larger sense, but it applied to Scotland too at the, at the UK level about whether the schools being taken off were entirely necessary in hindsight. And I mean, these are the things that the relatives are coming in and pinpointing. And for sure, that's what after it was all said and done, uh, when you get over the WhatsApp messaging and, and whether or not there is truthfulness about that, uh, you are getting to cabinet decisions and trying to understand whether there really were alternatives, whether the science led as much in Scotland as we hoped it did, um, whether this is all very well in hindsight, which is entirely possible when yep. you haven't got the gun at your head of this unprecedented world pandemic. Um, but there's got to be the sense that there's learning for the future and not Absolutely. the way that it, it often is where everyone says, oh, you know, we need to learn the lessons for the future. You have an inquiry that drags on so long that whole new generations are born by the time it comes up with its recommendations. And, the, you know, even the structures of governance have changed so that, you know, nobody's able to implement any of the, the, the propositions. But there have to be clear things like that about about the isolation of people um, and about about the movement of people, for, uh, which is a continuing issue between hospital and care homes, yeah. about the, the 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 situation with care homes generally. Um, yes. There was a comment made, I think, by Jean Freeman that she wasn't completely sure what the total number of care homes in Scotland was at the time that the decision to move people out occurred. And that just not knowing the total uh, really angered one of the relatives I heard who then said, well, that kind of makes you worry about a national care service. Now, that can easily be two and two put together to equal five. But of course, there's lots of worry about a national service that would have to be delivered locally yeah. anyway. So this correctly is throwing lots and lots of stuff in the air because it relates to almost every part of life of of our public services and shines a light onto pre-existing and new structures which are not really looking like they're terribly fit for purpose yet yeah absolutely because i mean that that's the whole point of an inquiry is to to analyze what happened what was what was done well what was done badly and to prepare for the next event and that lack of preparation for the previous event was absolutely glaringly obvious at the UK and obviously at the Scottish level within the framework of the union. So we've got that that situation there with a lack of testing, lack of PPE, the appalling situation about the, the, the ownership and control of care homes by the private sector. And I'm sorry. I, when I come down to it, I don't think you're making a profit out of health, education or social care. These should be non-profit making social enterprises, if you like, which are run for the benefit of the people who are involved in them, not for making profit. And that's a, that's a, that's a start and finish for me in these circumstances. And it gets people to evaluate what goes on, which will be of no 
no help at all to the to, to the people who lost family and who did presume there was something better going on in Scotland, which which did lead the UK government to actually kick their breeks when they looked at the fact of 26% thought the UK government was handling the pandemic well, as opposed to over 70% who thought the Scottish government was handling the pandemic well. And just one one final thing on it. If anyone actually turns around and says that we were, I, I personally was not confused at all about the messaging I was receiving from the Scottish government at every single level. Every single level from the material that came out to Nicola Sturgeon's briefings. And I and I will not forgive Dame of the British Empire, Jackie Bailey and Lord George Fawkes for their intervention, which actually secured that rather tortuous element where we had to cut away from the, the briefings that Nicola Sturgeon was giving and the answers she was giving to journalists on what was going on in Scotland to cut away from opposition parties chipping away at this and fundamentally saying, why aren't we doing what the rest of the UK or rather England is doing? I'm sorry, I was very, very clear what, what I was supposed to be doing and so was everybody else that I knew. I and I mean, I don't think it did them. I don't think that did them any favours, actually. And the reason that there was just come back to that phrase, nobody kicks a dead dog. I mean, clearly the polls were also, though, beginning to swing so much in favour of independence yeah. in correlation to the respect held for Nicola Sturgeon, particularly and the Scottish administration of COVID. So, you, you, you know, if you were Labour, you were thinking, well, the less exposure everyone has to Nicola Sturgeon, the blooming yeah. better. But then obviously everyone saw exactly what that was, you know, which was they were kind of quite enjoying hearing somebody treating them like a grown up. And, and actually, all I remember, you know, I don't remember the detail of everything, but I remember understanding the rationale, the reason that they'd come mm -hmm. to the, the the decision. And of course, there could have been other kind of, you know, explanations and other factors. But the fact that it was almost like mechanical difference between mechanical arithmetic. This is really going to take you back in time, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, to normal arithmetic, where if you just don't get the right answer, you get a zero, right? Mechanical arithmetic, I always quite like that one, is if you got the wrong answer, but your method was right, yeah, you right. still got yeah. marks, still got marks. Right? <laughs> Yes. So the point is, I think this was like a, a sort of textbook example of mechanical arithmetic or mechanical uh, sort of medical advice, because... If there was a wrong decision made at the end of it, and God, you know, they'd be the first to put their hands up and say that. Yes. They'd actually explained why they decided to do that thing, as opposed to Boris sort of strutting out with probably the wrong set of papers, um, just saying, you know, we've decided to do this because it's the right thing to do. I've got to say that phrase of just please nobody in Scottish life ever, ever use that. The right thing to do. What does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean at all? It just means to say, I am an oracle, you are not, just you kind of knuckle down kids and you do what you're told. And kind of the business of saying, I, I can see that you might think, ha, why are they doing that? Because this, that and the next thing might happen. Yeah, we thought about that. Here's what we think. It's like this, that and the next thing. So I don't know. What do you do? We're just deciding we're going to do that. That framework of, of dealing with people is why people were so appreciative of Nicola Sturgeon, actually, because it just felt like you were understanding the government was treating you like people who had to be brought on board, you know, who had to be sort of have something explained to them rather than just a bunch of serfs who would just get, you know, utterly incomprehensible stuff that hadn't been run past anybody in the science community looking at you, Rishi, and the eat out, et cetera. And I think still that's why I know a lot of people are looking at all the 
personal opinion polling and stuff. But weirdly, uh, Nicola is still polling above practically everybody, although it's negative, uh, because they remember that, you know, and they, they remember the sense that they got somebody who was going through not the motions, but the arguments with them. Yeah. And so, OK, there could have been a lot of uh, mistakes at the end of it. And sure, that problem that endured throughout, actually, Jerry Hassan's got a very good piece on this, tracing that kind of um, tendency from Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon to kind of hod the ball very yeah. tightly in there. Boy, did that ever become a difficulty when you've got a situation, there's not enough people in there with enough authority to question the ways that people mm -hmm. are tackling something. But still, having said that, um, there's no question that uh, they felt like there was a better connection with everything working through the uh, you know, ongoing crisis of everything than there was down the road. Albeit that Ian Blackford, who suddenly seems to be being put up a lot or putting himself up, I have no mm. idea, but uh, for, for speaking about things, every time he's given a difficult kind of, you know, dilemma to, to answer, the thing to do is to keep in the spirit of that. You've got to keep in the spirit of giving the reasons why, on the one hand, on the other hand, and we took a tough decision, and okay, it might, in hindsight, have been wrong. But Ian Blackford's response a lot of the time is just to say, Nicola was there every day. Now, I mean, I know that in the end, yes. a lot of people played yeah. a lot of store by the fact that she bothered her arse to actually get out and keep communications open. But that's not sort of good enough in itself. You know, we need to no. get back to knowing enough about what's being said to just illustrate that the, if, if you were in a bind and if you felt the pressure, you've got to communicate that in everything that happens. And well, we'll see what happens with Nicola tomorrow. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not going to let it go because if anyone thought that uh, leaking that WhatsApp message uh, that uh, where she described Boris Johnson as a fucking clown was going to reduce her popularity, I think no well, very many political parties right across the spectrum of Scotland, people and, and the UK, people stood up and applauded because mm. he was a fucking clown. He was the man who was like, let inject me with COVID and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, let's all, I mean, and fundamentally, let's all laugh at Italy and partying. So there you go. He was a clown. So I just, I'm interested, Pat. Does that mean that nobody gets to hear this podcast now because you have done a swearing oh, no, no, that no, many no. times? I, no, no, no. I just put up uh, explicit and. Okay. <laughs> Grown-ups can still can can still tune in. Yeah, and talking about explicit, I mean, I went to see an absolutely marvelous film called The Holdovers, which I thoroughly recommend to you. Set in 1970, and when I was 18 years old, and it, it's got the period detail absolutely perfectly done, and it's very ingenious. It's got a beautiful way of being filmed. Even the opening credits are superbly done, and it's just it's just beautifully done. It's a terrific story about, a, and it may sound odd, about a group of young men who are boys who are uh, an upmarket uh, New England prep school who are the holdovers, which means they don't go home for Christmas. And if you think it's going to go the Hollywood way, it takes twists and turns. Beautifully played, played Paul Giamatti in particular, playing the the crotchety the crotchety teacher who is uh, assigned to look after them over the Christmas break, beautifully played all sorts of nominations for Oscars and screenplays, etc. So I, I, I thoroughly recommend it to you. 
the holdovers. Um, and I can't remember how I started because I got started waxing lyrical about how good it was. And I can't remember how that, that link I was going to make to it. But honestly, I, I, I thoroughly recommend it to you. It's my film of the year. You know, it should have come out at Christmas. So it would have been my film of 2023 if I had any uh, I'd seen it at the appropriate time and I urge people to go and see it. It's beautifully filmed, beautifully performed, and it's not Hollywood. Yeah. There you go. That's a hint. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because I did a, a screening of the Denmark film and actually Estonia in uh, the Burke Cinema in Aberfeldy. Oh, yeah. And it was interesting speaking to Fiona that runs that there. It's a community-owned cinema. And she was saying, you know, it's kind of tough, actually, for a lot of cinemas at the moment because people don't seem to have got the going back to cinema habit, mm. even post-COVID. It's also that apart from the whatever it was, Barbie Oppenheimer kind yeah. of moment, there don't seem to be a, a lot of sort of films that have just got people, gosh, we've got to really go and see that. I guess there's also the fact that so many films are being produced by Netflix that there's something like The Maestro, yeah. for example, that I sort of noticed was in a cinema, but actually it's on Netflix then within about two weeks. And that gives the cinemas quite a thing because they've got a very short period of time before it's basically you know, available generally. But the one thing that actually seems to be really pulling people in is documentary films with Q&As by the makers. Right. And it wasn't just me. They'd had about two other events like that previously that were absolutely sold out. So Fak Ends, you know, it's just it's an interesting one because it, it feels a bit like there can even be just people on a bit of a personal mission that just have decided to make a film about it and then they turn up to talk about it. So it could be just it could be just them. But I mean, I, I'm also noticing that going around the place. Uh, you know, it's it's ironic, really, because they're they're. You know, for example, uh, tomorrow night, tomorrow's Wednesday, isn't it, is Montreux's Playhouse, which is sold out. It's been sold out for, you know, a couple of weeks. And I don't know if they'll be sold out for, you know, obviously, if there's a big you know, blockbuster film or even that very excellent one that you've described, I would imagine it would be pretty full. But a lot of the time it's not going to be. Mm. I don't know, again, whether it's just that it's a it's a single showing that could actually shoehorn yeah. people in rather than you know stuff's on normally it's on for a week and you can spread it out across a week anyway it's a, it's an interesting thing and the only other thing i'm finding i'm sorry because i keep forgetting i trill about this so much i keep forgetting if i've trilled about this before but ha having now got onto the audible thing i'm on to news of the dead by james robertson i don't know if i was on that the previous week if no. i have i apologize if i haven't it doesn't really matter because it's do you know, it is the business of listening. It's set in 1810. There's a bit of a ligger who's found his way into a big house somewhere up a glen near Forfar. Um, he has a sort of, uh, he speaks in kind of English Scots. Oh, Everybody yeah. else in the place speaks in utterly broad Scots. And it is, I have come off the road nearly twice. I have discovered <laughs> how to rewind to hear the funniest bits over and over and over and over again. Because the business of hearing people taking the feet from one another in broad Glen's Scots, which is not the same as Dundonian or, you know, it's its its own thing. Yeah. And the, I'm just speechless at the consummate skill of David Monteith and David Rintoul, the actors who are doing uh, these stints where they bring into in one fell swoop. They can move from being the general narrator who speaks mostly in English to a, 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 a sort of um, servant 
who is speaking in very broad Scots with a hugely kind of invective and who the hell do you think you are kind of tone to her speech. And back again, it's, a, it's an astonishing listen. And I find it quite emotional because I realise, I mean, my lot, the Riddicks, came from deepest Bampshire, the road junction. And when we went over from Belfast, mum, uh, da- mum was a wee bit out of it, but dad lapsed right back into the broad Doric, his, mm-hmm. my grandparents spoke. And somewhere, even though that's a long time ago and clearly a lot of other things had happened and everything, it's down there, you know, uh, in the base of something that that's kind of feels like home. And to hear people, it's not just a different language. It's not dif- different words or different cadence to the thing. It's the different kind of no nonsense sort of approach that there is between people um, and hearing it, being bathed in it for hours on end in these audiobooks, It's just it's just beautiful. It's like being in a bath of your own folks voices. Gosh, yeah, I. I was just just trying to think of something to say there, but it is absolutely that because it it is that it's the I'd hate to think that we're going to lose that, Leslie. I hate to but think. But the thing that, is, that, the that, beauty of this is, I mean, David Monteith and David Rintel, you'll look at that and you'll see that they've been in, as it were, proper English language stuff. <laughs> they are consummate Scots speakers, you know, yeah. and it's it's just there. Aye. But the, what I'm now beginning to feel is, I've read quite a lot of these books and it didn't have the effect on nope. me as hearing it is, you know, but I mean, to give yourself just a complete, it, it is just marvellous, basically. Try any of the books that have got big sections of Scots exchange within them. And it's kind of like the broadcasting you don't get. You know, you, sh- you should be bathed in this all the time because this is your own tongue. And I mean, you know, for what I was just saying before about Stephen Nolan, and that is essentially more just an accent but by gum, do you hear the way that, you know, folk are speaking in the streets of Belfast when you hear that programme? And that's what I always used to think about even a good phone-in. And clearly I'm not speaking Scots apart from the odd word, but then there was a bit of a tumble in Belfast that made that a bit confusing. Um, you know, what you hopefully get when you get people phoning up is if they feel relaxed enough, people will start speaking in their in their own tongues, you know. But nonetheless, News of the Dead, absolutely fan and we the thought that Scots isn't just for Burns Nicht. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>